0: Log Talk Radio.
1: The B.I.B.L.E. That's the book for me. The B.I.B.L.E. That's the book for me.
2: and you're some meaningless control here on Truth Be Told Radio and now we're going to start off with John MacArthur and it's called Strengthen Your Heart here on Truth Be Told Radio how do you
3: get that mind that inner part of me strong verse 16 he prays to the father that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power by his what spirit who is the strengthener of the heart Who is it? It's the Holy Spirit.
4: You probably know the biblical proverb that says, Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Of course, when scripture refers to the heart, it doesn't simply mean the muscle that pumps blood. It means the mind and the will and really your whole spiritual being. And indeed, you need to protect it, strengthen it, and keep it free from error. Well, keeping your heart free from error was one of the Apostle Paul's chief concerns, and he laid out concrete steps for doing that. So what are those steps? John MacArthur considers that today on Grace To You Weekend as he continues his series titled Complete in Christ. And now here's John.
3: By way of introduction, Let me say this. People might argue, and they have, over the primary requisite for an effective minister of Jesus Christ. They might debate about what, if there was one quality that a minister would have, what would it be? What would the one thing be that would make the shepherd the true shepherd of the sheep, the pastor the true pastor of the flock? I think the most basic, the most effective, the most necessary ingredient in the life of any minister is the love of the church, the love of the church, because that becomes the catalyst that motivates him in every other dimension. Paul loved the church. And you would have to say, I think, that his entire life was a love affair with the church, the people, the believing community. And the reason he loved the church so much is because he loved the Lord so much. Now, in his love for the church, as he comes to chapter 2, he's looking at the Colossian assembly. And as I said, Paul's emotion is not simple personal love, It isn't just that he's concerned about some people he likes a lot. He has this agony over people he's never even met because he loves the church, the church anywhere. And so out of this love comes the deepest desires for the church. And let's look at them. Number one, the first thing. The first thing that he wants for the church is that it be strong in heart. Strong in heart. You say, well, what is the heart symbolica? Revelation 2.23, and I'll show you something very interesting. Revelation 2.20, and we could look at, you know, stacks and stacks of Bible verses related to the heart to show this, but I'll just give you a couple, and you can study it on your own. I want to show you the point. Revelation 2.23, middle of the verse. I am he, the Lord's talking, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Now, what you have here is judgment, because he's just talked about the fact that he's going to cast this particular sinful situation into great tribulation if they don't repent and kill the children with death and etc etc and he says i will search the minds and the hearts what is the heart listen to me first of all we see from that passage the heart is the place of responsibility it's the place of responsibility the heart is that which is wicked in jeremiah 17 the heart of man is what deceitful above all things and what desperately wicked. It is the seat of responsibility. It is that which God is going to judge, and he will try men's what? Hearts. It is that which is righteous or wicked. When God redeems Israel, he will take away their stony heart and give them a new what? Heart. It is the seat of responsibility. It is that which is judged. Take you a step further. It can't be emotion, then. It can't be emotion. What is it? Let's look at Revelation 18, verse 7. And here he's talking about Babel and the Great, the destruction of the final world system in the tribulation. How much she hath glorified, Revelation eighteen seven, glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so much torment and sorrow give her. Listen. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and I'm no widow, and shall will see no sorrow. Now notice something. To say in her heart is a metaphor for doing what? Thinking. She said in her heart. What does that mean? She thought in her mind. What then does the heart picture? Not the emotions, but the mind. The intellect and the mind is made up of two things, the intellect and the will. That's the heart in biblical terminology. In ancient times, you don't find them referring to the brain. Listen to this one. The fool hath said in his brain. Oh, Fool hath said in his what? Heart. Why? Because the heart was the seat of thought. It was the seat of thinking. And so that the heart represents the mind that sets the pace and the bowels represent the responding emotion. You say, well, how did they get to this discovery? Well, it's easy to know how they got to the bowels being connected with emotion because when they got emotional, they began to have what we have today, upset stomachs, colitis, and all those symptoms that we get. Ulcers, right? All right here. But how did they get the heart out of the brain? Well, some have surmised that because when the brain is really functioning, the heart is really working, and they could feel it throbbing and pulsing. But that's the way they did it. Real serious thinking, says a Hebrew, can be felt in the beat of the heart. So the heart thinks and the bowels respond with emotion. That's the way you are. Now remember this. In the mind of the Hebrew and in the revelation of God, emotions never initiate. They always respond. The heart thinks and the emotions respond. That is the divine pattern. You know, when somebody comes to me and says, I can't control my emotions. Oh, your bowels are running wild. That is <laughs> Hebrew terminology. You've got a real problem. I can't control my emotions. You know why? Because your emotions will only be controlled by your mind. Because emotion is a responder. The key to controlling your emotions is filling your mind with divine truth. That's the key to controlling your emotion. You see, the, the emotions respond to what the mind perceives as true. You get that? Your emotions will respond to what your mind perceives as true. Even if it isn't true. That's right. Have you ever been lying in bed and all of a sudden you woke up with a jolt when you landed after falling off that 40-story building? You weren't falling, but your mind perceived it and your emotions responded to it. You know what that teaches me about emotions? Don't ever, what, trust them. Don't trust them. Because you can make your emotions do anything if you can just make your mind think it perceives that. And the only way to control your emotions is to make sure that your mind is filled with divine truth. Emotions are like bad little children. They'll run amok if you don't control them. And you say, how do you control them? You control them indirectly by feeding the mind. When people start putting emotion first, then they really get into problems. You see, emotion should always respond to the truth. The key then to behavior and the key to the control of emotion is the heart. The heart as seen as the mind We need to plant the truth in the mind and it will control the emotional responses. It's the way it ought to be. And that's why Proverbs 4.23 says, and this is good, guard your heart. What does it mean? Guard your mind, your brain, with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You see? You want to control life, guard your mind. And don't let anybody short-circuit it. And Proverbs, that's 4.23. Proverbs 22.5 further says, Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse, but he that doth guard his soul shall be far from them. The same basic terminology. Now let's go back to Colossians and watch what this means to you now. I wish you knew how great a conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their, what, hearts might be be strengthened. What do hearts mean? Minds. Paul says, number one thing I want out of you is to be strong in heart. What is the word comfort? Did you say it's comfort in my Bible? Sure. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. A very beautiful word. A word used repeatedly in the New Testament and a word that always contains the idea of strengthening. In Ephesians 6.22, it says that He might strengthen your hearts. In 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, strengthen your hearts. The word parakaleo includes in it the idea of comfort. Includes in it the idea of courage. It includes in it the idea of being strengthened. And it always carries all those aspects. In fact, we can look backwards into etymology and we can find the use of this word to mean specifically strengthened. It means to strengthen. It means to provide a strong, courageous inner man, an intellect and a will that will act heroically for God. A strong heart means a firm mind, a mind that has courage, a mind that has conviction, a mind that believes, a mind that has principle. You say, but how do you do that, John? How do you get a strong mind? And Paul is really saying, I don't want you people to fall prey to the false teaching of the the errorists. I don't want you to fall to these people who are teaching you lies. I want you to be strong in your mind. I want you to hold the truth. You say, but how do you get strong like that? I'll show you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 tells you in one verse. How do you get that mind, that inner part of me strong? Verse 16. He prays to the Father that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power by His what? Spirit. Who is the strengthener of the heart? Who is it? the Holy Spirit, and we need it. We live in a world with a weak heart. People don't have convictions. People don't believe in things. People don't know the truth. People don't learn the truth. They don't pursue the truth. They don't mind the truth. And he says, I want you to be strong in it. I want you to be courageous. I want you to be comforted, encouraged, and strengthened by it. All of that's in the word parakeleo. And the Holy Spirit is the one that can do it. You say, how does it happen, John? I believe as you yield to the power of the Spirit of God... As you walk in the Spirit, He strengthens the inner man. I think that's what He's saying here. You give the Spirit of God control of your life on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, and the Spirit of God will feed that inner man. The Spirit of God, by the revelation of God, will feed your mind and strengthen your mind. As we yield moment-by-moment to the presence of the Spirit of God, we're strengthened. Paul is a perfect illustration of that. In Acts 9 tells us that he was converted, and immediately one of the things that began to happen after he was converted was he began to be strengthened. Acts 9, 22, but Saul increased the more in strength. He became stronger and stronger. It wasn't that he was lifting weights, and it wasn't that he was eating a lot of food. It was that he was being equipped by the Spirit of God. And he became so strong in his heart, he became so solid in his confidence, he became so unflinching in his ministry that in chapter 20, verse 22, he said, I go bound into the spirit, to the Spirit uh, to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen except I hear that bonds and afflictions await me, but none of these things, what? Move me. Strong. Strong in his heart. He had convictions about God. He had convictions about God's will for his life. He had convictions about the acts of obedience that God was asking of him, and he was strong enough to carry them out. He was strong. Tremendous courage
5: did Paul have.
3: In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, he says, We're persecuted but not forsaken. We're cast down but not destroyed always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. He says in verse 8, we're troubled on every side, yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair. He says we go through a lot, we never flinch. Why, Paul? Because we're strong. How'd you get strong? By walking in the Spirit, and the Spirit pouring divine strength. After all, now listen to me. If the word parakaleo means to strengthen, it is the very same word that is used in John 14:15 and 16 as the name of the Holy Spirit. You remember the Holy Spirit being called parakletos, the paraclete? That's the identical word. You could just as well translate those verses this way. John 14:16, this would be accurate according to the meaning of the word. John 14, 16, Jesus said, and I will pray the Father and He shall give you another strengthener. Verse 26, but the strengthener who is the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things. John 15, 26, but when the strengthener is come. John 16, 7, if I go not away, the strengthener will not come. It's the same word. If you're going to be strong in heart, then you're going to be strengthened by the strengthener. And that's the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what makes a weak Christian. That's a Christian who walks all the time in the flesh, right? Listen, every step you take walking in the Spirit is a step like spiritual weightlifting, just that much stronger in your mind, in your convictions, in the things you know and believe about God. Now, I want to go a step further. Although the Holy Spirit is the strengthener, He uses human instruments. He uses people like me to strengthen you. People like you to strengthen each other. Listen to Acts 18, 23. And after he had spent some time there, that's Paul, he departed and went over the country of Galatia and Phrygia. Now listen, strengthening all the disciples. What was he doing? What was Paul doing? What did he do to them? He went in there and poured into their minds divine truth, and that strengthened them. God uses human instruments empowered by His Spirit to strengthen. Listen, people don't get strong by exercising their emotions. Do you understand that? You must understand when it says, I want you to have strong hearts, it doesn't mean I want you to have over-exercised emotions. What it means is I want you to have the input of the Spirit of God and the truth of God in your mind. And so it will come from the Holy Spirit who is the strengthener, and it'll come from other instruments, such as Paul, such as me, such as anybody. And you know something, that will come from you. Because if you're strong, you'll be able to pass that truth on. Paul says, I pray for you, Colossians. I pray you be strong in heart. What do you mean, Paul? I don't mean that you have over-exercised emotion. What I mean is that you take your heart, which is the mind, the source of intellect and will, and strengthen it so that it knows the truth and has the will to act on the truth. And then the emotions will flow along. You ever have one of those little toys with a flywheel in it? You know a flywheel, a big heavy wheel? And you give it a little push and it goes right across the floor for the first day. Second day, it doesn't do anything because your kid broke it. Now listen, emotions are like that flywheel. Truth is like your hand. Truth gives it the initial impetus and drives it. Then the emotion will take over and carry it. But you can't do it the other way around. You can't just sit there and say, little machine, Go! your emotions are a responder they are the appreciator of your soul and when the truth of God is poured into your mind and you understand it and you act on it it spins the flywheel of emotion and it will carry you out Paul's prayer for you his prayer for me his prayer for all of us is that we have strong hearts because if we have strong hearts, we're not going to be sucked into false doctrine, no. We're not going to be sucked into emotionalism. And We're not going to be sucked into disobedience because a strong heart has a will to obey. And I'll tell you something, when you have a strong heart, man, the results are so exciting. I'll close with this. Ephesians 3, 17 to 21 gives you the results. When you have a strong heart, when you are strengthened with might by the Spirit, Here's what happens in verse 17. Verse 16 says, Strengthened by the Spirit. When that happens and your heart is strong, Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. That is, He will settle down and be at home in you. You will be rooted and grounded in love. You will find a new dimension of understanding. Verse 18, You will begin to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge You will be filled with all the fullness of God. You will be able to do exceeding abundantly above all you can ask or think according to the power that works in you, and unto Him will be glory in the church. You see the results from strong hearts? Paul says, I love you people. I care about you. And what I want to see in your life, first of all, is that you be strong in heart. Father, thank you for things we've shared and learned. We do not desire that this should be the end of our pursuit of these truths but that it just be the beginning. We thank you, our Lord, that you have provided for us the food to feed the mind, that you have provided for us the flywheel of the emotions to respond and carry us out, excited, thrilled, happy, blessed, to fulfill your will in response to truth. Help us to control the emotions by filling the mind with your truth and activating the will to respond. We thank you for Paul and his love of the church. Give us the same. In Jesus' name.
4: This is Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. Thanks for being with us. John's current study from Colossians 1 and 2 is titled Complete in Christ. Uh, John, this idea of having strength of heart, strength of mind, as you said today, that sort of strength comes almost paradoxically when you yield to the power of the Spirit of God. It's a clear statement, but for some listeners, the actual yielding to the Spirit may not be so clear. In practical terms, what does this look like to yield to the Holy Spirit? How should that play out on a daily basis for the
5: Christian that's yeah, a very insightful question, because there are plenty of people in the Christian world who think yielding to the Spirit means sitting somewhere in a corner
1: mm.
5: and waiting for the Holy Spirit to talk. Uh, I just saw this morning when I was browsing through some of the current Christian literature, uh, an article on how to hear the voice of the Spirit.
1: Mm.
5: And the suggestion is that you sort of You quiet and empty your brain and you sit there in some meditative kind of uh, posture and wait to hear the voice of the Spirit. Nothing could be more ridiculous than that. When we yield to the power of the Spirit, it is that we are walking in obedience to the Spirit and the commands of the Spirit are found in the Scripture, in the Word of God. If you want to hear the voice of the Spirit, read the Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God, read the Bible. If you want to hear the voice of Christ, if you want Christ to speak to you, read the Bible. So yielding to the Spirit is really just another word for obedience. And I think that makes sense. If, if, uh, if obedience is anything, it is yielding to the will of someone else. And that someone else is God. And based on our current series in Colossians 1 and 2, you have, some, you have some understanding, I think, of this very important aspect of Christian living, yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. But We'd like to give you a tool that we've been talking about, if you haven't already ordered one, and I want to say a word about it again today. It's the study guide titled Complete in Christ. I would venture to say that if you have this, no matter what other study guides you may have or not have, you're going to find yourself going back to this again and again and again, because the realities that are bound up in being complete in Christ are the treasure house for all believers as they live in the world and follow the path of obedience and sanctification. You need to get a copy of Complete in Christ Study Guide, 250 pages long, available today, order the complete in Christ study guide and do it today.
4: Yep, friend, understanding how to yield to the Spirit and be strengthened by Him is foundational to living a life that glorifies our Lord, overcomes sin, and fights off discouragement. So I encourage you to pick up the complete in Christ study guide when you contact us today. Call 800-55-GRACE or go to gty.org this book could be especially beneficial to go through with a new Christian. The questions at the end of each chapter will reinforce what you're learning and also encourage practical discussions. Again, the title of the new study guide, Complete in Christ. Ask for it when you call 800-55-GRACE or order a copy online at gty.org. Also friend, if you are benefiting from John's current study, No, that's happening across the globe. People are benefiting because men and women like you support us financially. We are able to reach pastors, Sunday school teachers, people on the job, stay-at-home moms, students, and many others. And you help make that ministry possible as you stand with us. To express your financial support, you can write to Grace To You Weekend, Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412 or call us at 855 grace or go to gty.org now for John MacArthur and the entire staff I'm Phil Johnson encouraging you to be here at the same time next week when John looks at Christ's amazing power to transform every area of your life it's another half hour of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You Weekend
6: Canham Ham, on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. More and more, our world sees children as their property. They assume the state knows what's best for them. You see, in secular thinking, God didn't create the family, so society can define and redefine the family however it wants. But the Bible's history is true, including its creation account. Genesis states that God created the family, beginning with marriage between one man and one woman. The family is the first and most fundamental of all human institutions ordained by God. It's also the educational unit that passes on a spiritual legacy to impact the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. Children don't belong to the state. They've been given to parents by God.
0: Find resources that equip you to raise your children in the Lord when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school.
4: We kick it old school. We kick it old school.
1: We We kick it old school it old school come on come on don't
6: Our universe, created in a lab? This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our full-size Noah's Ark attraction in Northern Kentucky. If a scientist writes an article for a secular journal suggesting that God is the creator, it just won't be published. Now, one scientist recently wrote an article suggesting that our universe was designed, and it was posted on a mainstream science website. Why? Because he suggested aliens created the universe. He argued that maybe our universe was created in the laboratory of an advanced technological civilization with the technology to create a baby universe out of nothing. Yes, such a foolish article. It's obvious our universe didn't come from aliens, but from the hand of the infinite creator God
0: discover more about the true history of life and the universe when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com. My God is so big and so strong and so
1: mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and
6: DNA, it doesn't exist. This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. For decades, 98% of DNA was thought to be junk, useless leftovers from our supposed evolutionary history. Now this view has held back scientific research. Initially, many scientists didn't even want to bother researching the so-called junk regions. But last year, a team of researchers concluded the days of junk DNA are over. And the old view has fundamentally changed. In other words, evolutionary ideas made another wrong prediction. But from a biblical worldview, we don't expect most of our DNA to be useless junk. God designed our DNA, and even in a fallen world, we expect it to reflect his incredible design. And it
0: does. Get answers to your questions about science, the Bible, creation, evolution, and more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. All I want to do
1: is praise your name, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, you are my God, and all I want to do is praise your name.
6: male sportswoman of the year this is ken ham heading up the ministry that built a full size evangelistic noah's ark last year a biological male who lifts weights and identifies and competes as a woman was named sportswoman of the year transgender ideology is anti biblical and goes against observational science and it's a war on women one that's erasing them and hurting real people including those caught up in gender transitions Why is it happening? It's because people refuse to believe the truth of God's Word. Their darkened minds can't see the foolishness of what they believe. But we can clearly see this as foolishness when we start with Genesis. Male and female, He created them. We need to turn to the timeless Word of God.
0: Discover more about God's design for us when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this Bible upholding program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
1: Heresy. The end.
7: No debate. Let me take you back. What is open theism? Heresy. The end. No debate. Let me take you back to 2003. Three men in particular were promoting the idea that God doesn't know everything about the future. He knows a lot. But not everything. He's as surprised at sin and evil as you are. But don't worry. Even though God can't exactly chart the course of his ship over the ocean, he can bring it into safe harbor. So don't worry. Even though he doesn't even know the present or the future, he's ultimately going to get you to a safe destination. The Evangelical Theological Society responded by a vote requiring a two-thirds majority to determine should these individuals, Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, Greg Bo- Sanders, Greg Boyd was another, should they be a member of the Evangelical Theological Society by a hair's breadth, a breadth of hair. A thin margin, they were allowed to stay inside of the Evangelical Theological Society, but barely, but the story's not done. Three years later, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was released really in response to open theism, thus ending the debate for the ETS, making it clear the Bible couldn't be more emphatic that God knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. Because, after all, if God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future, if he doesn't know what waves are going to strike your ship, how can you know if he's going to get you to safe harbor? That was basically the end of open theism. It is still around because individuals who hold on to this doctrine are around but it should be roundly rejected by everyone because it diminishes the character and the nature of god and that is why this isn't just eh, sort of a difference of opinion It's, it's heresy sometimes things qualify for the strongest term that we have in christendom Let us not be quick to sling the label of heresy. We tend to do that too often. Somebody disagrees about the carpet color and everybody's a heretic because of it. No, it shouldn't be every issue, but there are some issues, and open theism is one of them. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain. You Arminian passengers. You might think you have free will, but not on this flight. So let's put those seats in their upright and locked position. The question, why are young men not getting married? The answer provided by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. This is a question every pastor has pondered. What's up with the young men in our flock? They, they don't want to get married. We all used to want to get married. Why? Indeed, something has changed. And in order to answer that question, at least in part, sit back, relax, uh, and, and leave the drive to Nancy Piercy. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, most of the ide- ideologies that bloodied the 20th century were influenced by him. You hated World Wars I and II, you can thank, in part, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. His writings inspired Robespierre in the French Revolution, as well as Marx, Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, and Mao. He's got quite a following of terrible human beings. Why? Because of his philosophy. Even Pol Pot, who massacred a quarter of the population in Cambodia, was educated in Paris and read Rousseau. So if you can get a grip on Rousseau's thinking, you have a key understanding to much of the modern world. Are you ready for the trip? Our destination will be an explanation why young men aren't getting married. What exactly was it that made his worldview so revolutionary? She asks. Rousseau said the way to grasp the essence of human nature, to understand who we really are, our true selves, was to hypothesize what we would be like If we were stripped of all social relationships, morals, laws, customs, traditions, civilization itself, in other words, who would you be if you had nobody or no thing influencing you? That's the essence of you. And Rousseau wanted to get you there. How did he recommend doing that? Well, you just ignore all of social constructs. You get rid of your past, and you just act any old way you feel like acting, because that's the real you. That is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He said, let's get rid of these things. This original pre-social condition he called the state of nature. In it, all that exists are lone, disconnected, autonomous individuals whose sole motivating force is the desire for self-preservation what Rousseau called self-love, social relationships are not ultimately real. Instead, they are secondary or derivative created by individual choice. Now, this does not get to our question at hand yet, but the focus on individualism does. Historically, in our world, we've lived communally and familially. Rousseau wanted to break down those constructs and those systems, so that you could be the real you, so that you could be your liberated true self. And his philosophy has caught on. And you'll see how it led people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot to do atrocious things, but you'll also see how it's affected young men today, even in the church. What did that mean for Rousseau's view of society? If our true nature is to be autonomous individuals, then society is contrary to our nature. Artificial, confining, oppressive. That's why his most influential work, The Social Contract, ever heard that term before? It comes from Rousseau, opens with this line. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. He did not mean chains of political oppression, as we're inclined to think, but Rousseau, that really, the really oppressive relationships were personal ones like marriage family church and the workplace bad 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 and bad you are good rousseau proposed that individuals are the sole ultimate reality he denounced civilization with its social conventions got rid of it all artificial and oppressive and what would liberate us from this oppression the state the government this was radical The state would destroy all social ties, releasing the individual from royalty to anything except itself. Rousseau spelled out his vision with startling clarity, quote, each citizen would then be completely independent of all of his fellow men and absolutely dependent on the state. No wonder his philosophies were rather popular with statists like Mao and Pol Pot and Stalin. It is because they imbibed Rousseau, but they are not the only ones. The kids these days are, too. We continue with our trip. Rousseau went further than Hobbes or Locke. In his statement of nature, in his state of nature, rather, the individual is stripped not only of social ties but of human nature itself. The earliest human is unformed, intermediate, nothing more than a beast, a gentle, peaceful, and happy beast but a beast nonetheless. Thus, Rousseau's definition of human nature is paradoxically not to have a nature at all and to be free to create oneself. Humans have the distinctive ability to develop and transform themselves. The reason social relationships are oppressive is that they interpret with the individual's freedom to create himself. This drum is getting banged over and over again. Be yourself, be yourself. You've got to be free to be yourself. Who's going to do that for you? The state is going to do that. With this concept, writes Piercy, of human nature, revolution, in the modern sense, becomes possible. Not just revolt against a political regime, but the attempt to destroy the entire social order and rebuild an ideal one from
0: scratch,
7: one that would transform human nature itself and create, quote, the new man. Aren't we seeing that today? If you've scratched your head pondering, why aren't the young people getting married? Why are young men just not pursuing it rapidly? There are many reasons for that. But Nancy Piercy, in a book called Total Truth, recalling the philosophical history of Western civilization helps us to understand why are young Christian men Seeing marriage not as an institution that is good, that should be desired, desired, but they see it as something risky and scary. Nancy Piercy is going to take us to that destination to answer the question, why aren't young people getting married? By studying Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you hear his thinking <laughs> everywhere. He's influenced every wicked human being who's ever slaughtered other people's. But he's also filtered his way down into commercials. Just do it. Believe in yourself. You've got this. You be you. What is that? That's Jean-Jacques Rousseau being your true self. And this concept, it, is, it smells everywhere in our society. Children are encouraged to cast off parents, and parents are told to mind their own business so that their kids can be their little autonomous selves. Kids are told that they're wonderful, they can do anything that they want to. Set your mind to it. You can do it because you, the individual, are amazing. We're not teaching history in schools anymore. Why? Because, well, that connects you to a bigger past and a bigger group of people. And romanticism says, uh-uh, 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 uh Instead, you need to be you. You need to figure out who your true self is and then live it. And too bad what society says. You be you. That's romanticism. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. That philosophy that was really concocted by Rousseau led to the conclusion that state and statism – will help us to accomplish our own self-liberation. That's that's what he taught. How did he get there? Let me take you back to Nancy Piercy in Total Truth. She writes, It may seem paradoxical that a philosophy of radical individualism would lead to radical statism, which is what we're seeing these days even in the Democratic Party, aren't we? More government, more government. The government's your friend. The government's going to keep you safe. The government protects you. The government's going to help with your transportation. The government is going to help to make sure the planet doesn't fall in on itself and you can live. That's what we're seeing, radical statism. But a woman named Hannah Arendt, or Arendt points out in The Origins of Totalitarianism disconnected Isolated individuals are actually the most vulnerable to totalitarian control because they have no competing identity or loyalties. Oh, that's how it happens. Strip somebody of family. Be the self. Just your share, just your first name. You have no history. You have no tradition. You've learned nothing in school about the American – learn nothing about the Founding Fathers, nothing about the Pilgrims. It's just you. You're the Marlboro man riding alone on the range. You are really vulnerable. That happens to have some application for your membership in a local church, by the way. Back to Nancy Piercy. That's why one of the best ways to protect individual rights is by protecting the rights of groups, such as families, churches, schools, businesses, and voluntary associations. Track with her. Strong, independent social groupings actually help to limit the state because each claims a sphere of responsibility and jurisdiction. Thus... Preventing the state from controlling every aspect of life. That's why it's good that we all have freedom of religion and freedom of speech as a society. Because it helps the individual. If we're all just individuals, then somebody is going to step in and fill the void. Hence statism. Unfortunately, most Americans' political thought, both liberal and conservative, continues to rest on the atomistic view that society is made up of autonomous individuals. This is the difference between how you see yourself. Am I an individual or am I a part of something else? Obviously, for the Christian, it would be more than just, I'm a part of America or my neighbor, I'm a part of Christ. And yet, how many Christians feel like they are a lone ranger?
8: I serve
9: the Roman Empire.
7: Back to Piercy. The assumption of autonomous individualism is a central factor in the breakdown of American society today. Take public policy.
10: Please.
7: In Democracy's Discontent, Michael Sandel says the background belief of modern liberalism is the concept of the unencumbered self, by which he means, quote, unencumbered by moral or civic ties that they have not chosen. In liberalism, the individual exists prior to its membership in moral communities such as marriage, family, church, and polity. The self is even prior to any definition of its own nature. Thus, for liberalism, the core of our personhood is our ability to choose our own identity to create ourselves. Now we're getting there to answer the question, why aren't young people getting married? This is why relationships and responsibilities are often considered separate from and even contradictory to our essential identity. Why individuals often feel that they need to break free from their social roles as husband, wife, parent, in order to find the true self. It is a Rousseau redux. And that ideology has been imbibed by young Christians. If you recall, our destination was answering the question, "Why aren't young people getting married?" Again, many reasons. this is one from Nancy Piercy. Ideas like these do not remain purely abstract and academic. this is This is why we study philosophy. I think one of the differences of opinion that I would have with Nancy Piercy, and it's certainly secondary, she's really good is that she would say we study philosophy and history because we should be intellectuals. And I I agree we should. But I want to study philosophy, not so I can learn more about my Christian faith, but so I can understand how the world is thinking so wrongly to to be able to then apply Scripture to their bad thinking. That's why I think we should be studying philosophy, because otherwise, quite honestly, it'll just make your head explode. People filter down from professors to their students, who may well put them into practice. For example, with marriage reduced to sheer choice, many students are deciding that saying I do has become too risky, that it's not worth the trade-off involved in giving up their autonomy. Oh, is that why young people don't want to get married? I, I, hey, there's a risk here myself might suffer we've seen marriages break up people lose their houses the kids are divided i want me to be happy i don't want to go through that i think it's too risky i'm going to wait i've heard this expressed this is not uncommon for young christian men they actually feel that getting married is fraught with dangers could it be It's because they have become so autonomous, and they are not a part of something bigger. They're not connected to family. They're not connected to any institutions. They're not connected to the church. They're not connected to their country. They're not connected to culture and society. A study from the National Marriage Project at Rutgers found that today's young people view marriage as a form of economic exposure and risk, largely due to the prevalence of divorce. This is the deadly fruit of the atomistic view of society. Instead of being reverenced as a social good, marriage is now feared as an economic risk. Quote, today's singles mating culture is not oriented to marriage. The study from Rutgers says, instead, it is best described as a low commitment culture of sex without strings, relationships without rings. Clearly, the ontological individualism of Hobbes, Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau remains at the heart of America's social and political, and I would add, marriage crisis. Have you been goading your young person to get married? Get married. Get, what's up with you? What's up with you? And they just won't. I don't want to. I haven't found anybody. Ah, it's too risky. I, I just don't trust that this is a good thing. We need to be lifting up marriage as a good not just for them, but for the world. Marriage is good because it's God's institution, and rightly instituted, it affects everybody and everything. Then getting married is about more than self. It is about doing good for families, for my neighborhood, for my country, and for my local church. And as evangelicals, we need to be raising up the blessings of marriage and that it is ultimately theological. It is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, the man plays the role of Jesus. The woman plays the role of the church. It is a glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's more than an economic gamble. It's God's institution, and it is good. All right, gentlemen, second half. Here's the strategy, psalms, imprecatory psalms. Now, take
2: any. Is from Wretched. Uh, wretched.org. That's dot O-R-G. And you can find them on YouTube. They're just Wretched. as their channel. That's what I got that from. And you could. They have a radio show or podcast, podcast also known that, and have a TV show. So you check that out. Wretched.org. And thanks for listening, Truthy Tall Radio. And I'll play a song for you.
1: Yeah. A mighty Fortress.
11: of testimony that begin with the letter E. As an overview, you can see that it is. First of all, we have early testimony. Most, if not all, the New Testament documents are written prior to 70 AD. Secondly, we have eyewitness testimony. For example, there's 140 details between the Book of Acts and the Gospel of John that have been verified to either be eyewitness details or details that only an eyewitness could know or or they knew somebody was an eyewitness. Uh, thirdly we have embarrassing testimony that may sound a little strange but there's so many embarrassing details in the text that the writers never would have made up like for example they never would have called have jesus call peter satan they never would have had peter deny christ three times they certainly wouldn't have run away while the women were the brave ones at the crucifixion right that doesn't make any sense they wouldn't have the women be the first witnesses they wouldn't doubt that he had risen from the dead after he had risen from the dead there's so many embarrassing details this is not a made-up story Uh, Number four, we have excruciating testimony, that literally means out of the crucifixion that these individuals died brutal deaths, excruciating deaths, when they could have saved themselves by saying Jesus had not risen from the dead, but they went to their deaths anyway. We also have expected testimony, that's number five, in other words, there's Old Testament prophecy that causes us to expect a messiah in the first century with the same characteristics Jesus had. Just, Just look at Isaiah 53, you don't need to go much further than that. And then uh, finally, we have extra-biblical testimony. Uh, we have ten ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus' life, and when you take their brief references to Jesus and early Christianity, you get a storyline congruent with the New Testament. So, for those six reasons—early, eyewitness, embarrassing, excruciating, extra-biblical, and expected testimony—we we pretty much know that the New Testament is historically reliable. <laughs>
12: Yeah.
9: Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God
1: made me and you. Let's go. We all different
9: the cross, we see what God's love is about. There's no type of person that Jesus left out. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, all those who trust in the Lord will be saved. In the book of Revelation, chapter number seven, the church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine. This is exactly what God has designed, when God made me and you. Though we all
1: Uh, have a different story, God made me and you. He made us all, y'all. God made me and you.
12: For our joy and for his glory, God made me and you. Say what? God made me and you.
9: Yeah, yeah. Different colors and different shades, all differently and wonderfully made. The glory of God displayed.
12: God made me and you.
9: For all about you, all are lost. All of great need for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross. God made
12: me and
9: you. Different colors and different shades, All fearfully and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. For all about you, all are lost. All of great need for the cross.
1: And pay God made me and you What is prayer?
13: Prayer is offering up our desires.
9: now we can pray to our Father in heaven above. We can come to our God at any time of the day and he'll receive us so great his love. He wants us to talk to him with a sincere heart And rejoice when we're really glad And when it seems like things are falling apart, we can pray. we pray that our father would help us grow to make us look more like his son we pray that his ways he'd help us know above all that his will be done we pray that god would provide all our needs that we would glorify him in all our deeds because of jesus
14: That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com you like to read blogs we've got you covered check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com that's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com also follow us on twitter as truth the letter b then told radio that is t-r-u-t-h-b-t-o-l-d-r-a-d-i-o once again that is truth the letter b only not b-e told radio this is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-S dot com. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. <sighs>
9: Let me start this off with a hallelujah To Jesus the sovereign ruler This is not a rumor got the truth. that we about to school you Check out a style maneuver Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ brought us up from mouth the sewer We don't have to doubt the future crash in our verses As we bask in his worship You asking the purpose Partly to set catch from the furnace To Jesus' extravagant service Immaculate purchase He was smashing the serpent And we only
11: scratching the surface He's received and was conceived In the womb of a virgin The sun emerges in the manger While the angels serenade him the birth of the Savior The greater and came a man came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand in the place of the wicked on the cross he was lifted but we considered him freaking and afflicted just like the prophets predicted he came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay out his life to offer atonement he's the
15: most magnificent the total antithesis of insufficiency the blessed the glorious splendid transcendentship difficult to comprehend independent of space Presently presence, suspending the heavens with speech From coast to coast, he speaks peace, to wind and seas Got heavenly hosts easily posted on bended knees. Controls the cosmos with
9: the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ the priest the sovereign thriller, the awesome hiller, the law fulfiller The sovereign killer, the proper villain, no goddess ruler, yeah We can take any time in the scripture, With the gate is a prominent picture See his light shining bright in the night, and it's fright in the might in the diamond in the mixture See his name at all the renown though. When he came for the loss that he found, low, He was tamed in floss all around, but remained for the manger cross of the clown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Price for the rope open then All to the I, to the S, to the E, to the N. That's what we hoping in. Written on spell check. The risen king can rinse clean. The most rebellious I was hellbound. Now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a bond servant to the word of
11: life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We gotta hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's thinking. We are clinging to the promises that God in an everlasting kingdom.
15: Nothing can compare to the word of what we inherited nothing in heaven known earth can measure what christ merited the skies declare the affairs of his glorious care the god who is there who's aware who delights in our prayer his purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate everything that orbits around his glory subordinate he is the most excellent one intrinsic infinite son pre-eminent the name par excellence prenom, phenomenon he's beyond
9: phenomenon you see the father of cosmology the iber of astronomy he's potter we are pottery it's shocking jesus died for me the father he adopted me and constantly for me, Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey, from sovereignty and lottery, to poverty and robberies to resurrected bodily, apocalyptic prophecy, he's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent, it's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment, study the development
1: from Old and New Testament, you'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age, it's relevant, crisis on its center stage, forget religious sentiments, the center on man, for something less is what you're settling, He is the most excellent exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. The sinner sinners that separated and segregated, that severed the relations between man and his maker, and placed Christ on his costly cross, and compensated his life, death, and resurrection, emancipated, and gave us freedom from it all,
15: freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, and from the law, so the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause, with hands raised, praising his
1: name, singing glory to God. i the a white sister white sister white sister white sister
2: This is David Wood, is there hope for a psychopath from One Man Apologist?
8: My heart goes out to um, people that struggle uh, with different types of mental illness. As somebody myself, uh, ever since I was a kid, I can remember just feeling anxious and having anxiety, Um, being overcome with fears and worries. Flipping into depression, where I feel hopeless. Uh, it's, I think, made me more of a compassionate person because I feel for people that, that struggle in different ways. But I also know, even like as a psychopath, um, that's just a, a, a part of brokenness that, that you acknowledge, that you experience. And I feel like I would love to see our culture not demonize people who have these struggles because sometimes people aren't it's not always just a moral issue it's like you didn't ask to not feel that. It, it's just there you, you probably would like to be able to understand that but, but it's just not there and I, I, I'm compassionate toward you for that and, and, and I just like, would want to ask you a question because you're really brave coming out about that I mean there's a stigma when you say psychopath it's one thing to say I have mental health issues and, and, and I'm sharing that I do. But, man, it's upping the Annie in the vulnerability department to say, man, I'm a psychopath. And um, I just appreciate that you're willing to share that. And I think that no one could have better advice than I know of than you, David, on maybe somebody's raising a psychopath or maybe somebody's struggling with it, and they just want hope, and they just feel demonized and shut out by the church. Is there hope, and how do you cope with it, and what would you offer?
16: Yeah... It is, uh, it's sad that there are people who have to deal with this. There are people who have to deal with their kids uh, exhibiting uh, the characteristics of, of psychopaths. I do get messages from people saying, uh, you know, my son or daughter did this horrible thing, killed a dog or something like that, and shows absolutely no remorse, just doesn't care. Uh, what do I do? And th- this isn't based on any tremendous research. All I can say is a little bit from personal experience, I think the, the most important first step is getting a psychopath to realize that he or she is defective and not superior. So you grow up as a psychopath and you start seeing other people crying over things and you don't have those reactions and you start viewing them as inferior. Right? You're superior to them. You don't, you don't uh, have these weak little emotions that the rest of them have. And so you're superior you end up as a narcissist. Well, if you, if you view yourself as superior – and everyone else is inferior, very difficult to to say that that they're the ones who are actually right in some way and you're the one that's wrong in some way. But if you can ever uh, get the psychopath to realize, hey, you are not unique here, you are not the center of the universe, this is actually a disorder that affects lots of people. And it's not that you have some ability that other people lack. You lack an ability that other people have. It's like you've been born without something. You've been like you've been born missing an arm or something like that or missing a part of your brain. You're defective. Uh, You don't have to put it like that, but that's the idea you want to get across. You have a problem. You have a problem. And so you you lack an ability that other people have. And so uh, what are you going to do about it? And so if they're in that position to not, you know, if you can keep them from thinking that they're superior and better than everyone else, then they might want to start thinking, okay, well, well, you know, what can I do about this? One of the things I've done is I, I've had to invent um, sort of replacement emotions over, over the years, right? Like, I don't feel guilt, but I understand situations where I should feel guilt. I, I, know what, I know what a situation is like where I sit back and say, I should feel guilt over that. And there's a different kind of, I don't know if I want to call it a feeling or what, there's a sense that, wow, I am messed up for not feeling Guilty about doing this horrible thing, and so I, I can just rename that guilt because it's close closest I can get, right? So I can say, yeah, I feel really guilty about this, and what I what I really mean is, I lack the feeling that a normal person lacks, and I acknowledge that I'm really messed up because of that, and that is that's not that's not good. That's really bad that I'm defective in this way.
5: Like a um, person who
16: can't feel physical pain, they can observe, like, hey, I might not feel physical pain, but if I touch the stove, I'm going to cause some problems here. It's kind of that situation. Yeah. So I have to come up with kind of a replacement, uh, re- replacement emotions where it's acknowledging that I'm, I'm defective in some way. But uh, once a person has, has gotten to that point, recognizing that, that, they are, that they're missing something, well then they can, they can try to take steps, right? They can try to take, take steps. I do need to modify my behavior because I'm not better than other people. I'm actually defective, and I need to do what's right, even though I'm lacking something that other people have. And so it might be more difficult for me, but I, I, I still have to go out there and do it. And what you would, what you would hope for is that, uh, you know, this can actually lead to the gospel because, you know, we're, we're fallen sinful creatures and we're fallen in, in various ways. But, um, you know, if we look forward to our, our resurrection – when all of this will be repaired. Um, I would think that that's the the best hope for a psychopath.
9: As long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same.
17: above
9: About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cost When Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of this great cost I'm Saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust he died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free But ever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was
17: Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change, forever you reign, you remain the same, you will never change, you will never change, beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change.
8: Can a
15: person be good without God? Well, the Bible says no one is righteous and no one does good, not even one person. Whoa, hold on. People who aren't Christians do good things all the time. A person doesn't need God to love, be selfless, or considerate of others. Okay, can a godless person do nice things? Sure, anyone is capable of upstanding moral character, displaying kindness and charity toward others, expecting nothing in return. But apart from God, their motivations, no matter how genuine, are wicked and self-serving. When a person thinks they can be good without God, they're claiming they're better than God. I don't need you or your word. I can be righteous by myself. That's called self-righteousness. Do you really think God would let anyone into heaven proclaiming their own glory? The Bible says that whatever is not done in faith is sin, and even our best deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. No one goes to heaven by being a good person because no one can do anything good. If that's the case, then what hope do we have? The answer is Jesus. Romans 3 goes on to say that the righteousness of God has been given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Believers in Christ wear his righteousness. And now when God looks at us, he sees not our filthy rags, but the perfection of his son. Belief in Jesus is not because we need a moral code. It's because we need salvation from death. God so loved us that he sent his only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Through Jesus, God equips us with everything good, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight when we understand the text. <laughs>
9: in the image of the beautiful most high God told them be fruitful and multiply everything's yours but that tree do not try because in the day you eat it you're surely gonna die I'm sure you know the rest yes they failed the test and ever since then the world has been a big mess so as we read the Bible it's important that we see this there's only one hero and his name is Jesus
13: God made
9: me. What else did God make?
13: All things.
9: Why did God make all things?
13: For His glory.
9: How can you glorify God?
13: By loving Him and doing what He commands.
9: Where do you learn how to love and obey God?
13: In the Bible.
9: What's the Bible?
13: God's word. God's word. God's word.
9: there more than one God?
13: No, there is only one God.
9: And how many persons does this one God exist?
13: Three persons.
9: Who are the three persons?
13: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
9: Where is God?
13: God is everywhere.
9: Can you see God?
13: No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me.
9: Who were our first parents?
13: Adam and Eve.
9: What did Adam and Eve do?
13: They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God.
9: Why did God send Jesus into the world?
13: To save his people from their sins.
9: What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins?
13: He died on the cross and he rose from the grave.
9: Jesus do after he rose from the grave?
13: He ascended into heaven.
9: Where is Jesus now?
13: He is seated at his father's right hand.
9: And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age?
13: He's going to come back and judge the world.
9: What must a person do to be saved?
13: Believe in the gospel.
9: What is the gospel?
13: The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection.
9: How is the person faith?
13: By God's grace alone.
9: And what is grace?
13: God's kindness to the undeserving.
10: If things happen in this world outside the sovereignty of God, then that would simply mean that God God is not sovereign, then God is not God. It's that simple. And if the God you believe in is not a sovereign God, then you really don't believe in God. You may have a theory of God, you may have theoretical theism, but bottom line, for all practical purposes, no different from atheism, because you're believing in a God who is not sovereign. Now, what are the practical implications of a non-sovereign God? Think of it now from the perspective of those of you who are professing Christians. If there's one maverick molecule in the universe running loose outside of the control of God's sovereignty, then the practical implications for us as Christians is that we have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise that God has made to his people will come to pass. The Bible says, Who has spoken and it came to pass
15: unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? 1 John 2.25 says, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, when we understand the
2: text. That's that's all I got for Tripy Toll Radio. Got to go out with Yancy and Friends and the VI building. Bye for now.